Father in heaven, thank you that this world is not an accident. Thank you that it's not just random, but you made this world. And thank you that you, you don't hide, but you've revealed yourself to us um, in your son, the Lord Jesus, and in your word about him. And so as we open up this word this morning, we pray that we might see you all the more clearly. And we pray that we might love you more as a result and indeed be willing to, to apply this passage to our lives by the help of your Spirit. Amen. And last week, we, if you were here, we, we thought, do you remember, about the phenomenon of the, of the bucket list. The idea that because time is short, you construct a list of places you want to go, things you want to do, the stuff you want to squish in before, well, before it's game over. And so this last week, I've been on uh, bucketlist.net, looking at other people's lists from around the world, getting some ideas perhaps for me, and maybe not. But I I wonder, what do you think the top five entries are on bucketlist.net? Don't shout out, but just kind of get some ideas in your head, the kind of things you think they might be saying. Bucketlist.net, top five things. Number one, to see the northern lights, the aurora borealis. Number two, skydive. Number three, get a tattoo. Maybe even some of us have got that. Number four, go on a cruise. And number five, swim with dolphins, which I thought was a bit weird. And in one sense, of course, there is nothing wrong with any of them. God has given us a world of color and senses and beauty and appreciation. And he's generous. He he gives us gifts to enjoy. He's our father in heaven who, who loves his people that he's made. And And yet we did say that the sort of bucket list phenomenon is representing very clearly the spirit of our age, both in the fact that time is limited and there's only the focus on the here and now, but it's also very much about me and what I want to do. Do you notice none of them really was corporate? None of them was about how can I help other people? It's about me and what I can do, experience, taste, touch, squeeze every last drop out of my life to make the most of it. And so last time, if you were here, you remember, we, we thought about an alternative bucket list for believers from, um, from Peter. Do you remember 4 verse 7? Have a look down if you've got it open in front of you. And um, he says, the end of all things is near, and therefore, go on a cruise and swim with dolphins. No, therefore, well, it was all pretty mundane and pedestrian. It was normal Christian life stuff. Do you remember? It was be alert so you can pray. It was love each other deeply. It was forgiveness. It was hospitality without grumbling and stewarding our gifts well, as we're thinking about with Phil a moment ago. Why? For his glory that he might be praised. And actually, I think he sort of turns into the final, um, the final kind of 400 meters, if you like, of the, of the letter. But actually, he is expanding this morning on what, more things we add to our bucket list for the normal Christian life. Daily expectations. Uh, But do you remember the context that he's writing to? Do you remember where this letter has come from and how it's got into our hands? The context is, Peter is writing to scattered believers around what we would call modern-day Turkey who are increasingly needing to go against the flow of the culture around them. Do you remember the, the metaphor? It's climbing the car park staircase round and round and round and everyone else is coming down and you feel squished and squashed and elbowed and awkward and, and that's us going up 
and everyone else coming down. And the Christians there that Peter were writing to, they're getting it in the neck. Um, definitely through words, possibly through actions. And so the extra thing for our bucket list this morning, from 4 verse 12 onwards, is how we respond to suffering. Suffering is an expectation in the Bible. It's the pattern that as believers we ought to envisage, imagine. See, to follow Christ to the cross means that we will enjoy that suffering and that glory as he did. Of course, our problem in the West, if you're anything like me at least, is that we do all that we can to eliminate suffering. Comfort is really highly prized. Self is on the throne, and so I want to enjoy all that I can. I want to have my cake and eat it. And we think something's gone wrong if, if we don't get what we want, or if life is hard and it's complicated. It's as if we're magnets, and we sort of repel. We've got our hearts on one side and hardship on the other, and you push them together, and they never meet because they're repelling each other. It's almost impossible. And so our question for this morning is, if suffering is a given, what kind of mindset do we need, at least, to be more likely to be more willing to experience it, not to run from it? I think what we'll see from Peter is it's not just dig deep, it's not just grin and bear it, it's not just plod on, but there are things we need to remember and to latch onto that will help us be willing to face it. And before we get there, I just want to talk about the kind of suffering he's envisaging there. I think if you read the Bible, there are different kinds of suffering uh, that are painted for us. There's a sort of a universal suffering that happens because we live this side of the fall, that side of Jesus returning, and in a world that is bruised and broken and the mess and the mayhem of, of creation after Genesis 3, everything out of kilter, a world where suffering is reality, where everybody's suffering. Everybody. That is a biblical category, and I'm sure you are familiar with it. You might wear the mask, you might put the face on for church, but in reality, you are suffering. I don't think we're talking about that suffering this morning. There's another kind of suffering as well um, that you're probably familiar with, hopefully in theory rather than practice, but it's there in verse 15 of the passage. You see, if you suffer... It should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even, even as a meddler. So there's a suffering that comes from an outworking or the consequence of sin, an outworking of foolish actions. The reality of the response that you will have to face if you do bad stuff. And at one end of the spectrum, we've got murder and thieving, and we know that's not what we ought to do. If you are a thief, you'll know the likely consequences if you get caught. If you are a murderer, you will know the likely consequences as you get caught. But then he lumps in meddling. Why meddling? Just quickly. Verse 15. Great question. People don't really know. Um, presumably, Christians then, maybe as they do now, have a tendency to meddle. Maybe to intervene or to criticize in the sort of the anti-God culture of the time. The Greek word is literally not one's own overseer. So it's someone, it seems, who takes it upon themselves to intervene and to interfere into the affairs of others. And I think Peter is basically saying, stay in your lane. Don't suffer for being an idiot, for being a fool. 
And don't suffer and say, well, stop targeting me for being a believer in Jesus, someone who's following Jesus, when in actual fact, you're just getting what you deserve for your own stupidity. He's not talking about that suffering either. But the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about is suffering as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. It's the suffering that you might have experienced for being associated with him. I think the passage splits in half. I think the final bit of each half, the conclusion of each half, gives us our application for each half of the passage. So have a look at verse verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Okay, so that's our first application. Praise God in the midst of suffering. We'll see in a second. And then verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So not ashamed, but praise God in the midst of suffering, first half. And then commitment in the midst of suffering to continue to do good. Hopefully on the screen you can see something of that. There we go. Let's go back to the first one. So praise in the midst of suffering, first half. If you know the book of Acts at all... People of God joyful that they are counted alongside Jesus. Maybe the apostles before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, they, they are released and they are flogged because they've been preaching the gospel. And what happens? They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Or later on, Acts 16, Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi. About midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what? They were praising and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. And my question, and I guess your question, or our question is, how do we get to the kind of place where we're not just willing to possibly endure suffering, but able, 4 verse 16 and Peter, to praise God that we bear his name? How do we get any, anywhere near that kind of an understanding? Maybe it's just me, I'm not sure I'm there yet. And I wonder actually if we're in good company because I'm not sure they were there yet either and that is why Peter brings it up. Five little diamonds in the text that will move us potentially to being more willing to be able to praise in the midst of suffering. Five little bits of treasure in the trials, if you like. The first one, 12a, is to know that it's coming. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeals that have come on you. Make sure you've read and you've not ignored or discounted the small print, says Peter. You know you get your app and you just flick through and click yes at the end? Don't do that, he says, when it comes to being a Christian. They need to understand the reality of what comes with following Jesus, what they are signing themselves up to. I mean, they're climbing up the stairs, round and round and round. They didn't realize people would come down. Then you've missed something. If they were surprised or astonished or astounded by the, the presence or the reality of the hardship they were going to face, then I guess they would have been tempted to reconsider or to think maybe God isn't there or maybe God doesn't care or maybe God can't help. So I think he says to us, Morgan Road, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. With them, 
with brothers and sisters around the world, with brothers and sisters in the pages of history. Don't be surprised. To follow Jesus won't be easy. It's one of the reasons um, that he urged, he urged those who follow him, Jesus urged those who follow him to count the cost. Count the cost before you go. Can I speak just briefly to, um, I guess, secondary school students at this point, teens and preteens? You will know something of the fact it's awkward to follow Jesus at your age and stage in life. There's so much confusion at the moment in our society about all kinds of things. Our Western society moves further and further and further away from its Judeo-Christian roots, further away from God. And you will know how awkward it can be to follow Jesus and to make a stand. Or maybe an age when identity really matters. And what people think of you actually really hurts. It can feel much easier to be quiet and to blend in like a chameleon. But can I say Jesus is worth it? He is worth it. It may bring hardships. It may make conversations or friendships awkward. But he's worth it. And one of the things we've said so far in Peter is we've spoken about suffering. Is It's primarily about words. And I hold to that. But does this fiery trial, verse 12a, does this mean something more physical, do you think? Again, some would argue that. I wonder if it's, it's not so much more about the, the reality of what the suffering is like, but rather the, what the fire is doing. Not so much the nature of the suffering, but the outworking of it. And what is the fire doing? It is there to test and to refine and to purify. Okay, so first piece of treasure. Know that it's coming. The second is to know that God is using it, 12b. Your suffering, even though painful, even though you might not enjoy it in the short term, you can know, dear friends, that God is using your suffering to mature you. We've just said it's refining. Or Psalm 66.10, for you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. Or we saw it back in James earlier in the year. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That can be hard to trust, isn't it, can't it, in a, in a world that loves the instant. But friends, take the long view if you can. Our suffering now is not meaningless. There might be pain now. But God never wastes anything. He is at work in the midst of it. All of this suffering that's going on is getting weaved into a beautiful tapestry that at the end of the day you will see something of what it was all for and his work in you. Third piece of treasure, know that you identify with Christ, verse 13 and verse 16. But rejoice, verse 13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And then verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, like the guys in Acts, but praise God that you bear that name. Friends, we shouldn't be astonished, we should be astounded. It's not a problem to be avoided, it's a privilege to be enjoyed even. It's a badge of honour. Again, how do we get to a kind of mindset where we actually believe that? Where we don't just run from suffering? 
I wonder if it's worth remembering, and it actually works both ways as well. It's, it's not just that we identify with Jesus, but that he identifies with you as you suffer for him. So back in Acts again, chapter 9, um, Saul's conversion. You remember Saul? He, he hears words, and for a time he's blinded. But do you remember what the words say? As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. I mean, in Saul's mind, he wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting his pesky followers. But in Jesus' mind, his people are so closely tied up with him that if you persecute them, so you persecute him. He identifies with us. Fourth piece of treasure, verse 13. Know that you'll be glorified then. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're willing to suffer for him, that's evidence of whom you are following and whom you belong to. And so when, when he returns and when judgment comes, when his glory is revealed, you'll be seen as one of his. This is not all there is. Not it. If this is not the entirety of our reality, if there is more to come, if there is a day then that is to impact our life now, then maybe that kind of a mentality, that kind of focus can shape how we live in the day-to-day. And maybe then we might be more willing to suffer. Fifth one. The final treasure in the trial Verse 14, know that his spirit rests on you now. Have a look at verse 14. You are insulted because of the name of Christ. You are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And I think what Peter is doing is he's harking us back actually to the prophecy of Isaiah 700 plus years before Jesus. It's the sort of Christmas carol type verses. Um, Isaiah 11 and verse 1 and 2, that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, of counsel and of might, of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And that phrase that he uses in Isaiah 11 verse 2 of Jesus, I think Peter gives us a bit of a nudge and a wink. You know, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's, it's exactly the same wording. The spirit that rests on Jesus, the suffering Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who would go to the cross, that same spirit rests on you and me as we follow him. which means we're not on our own, which means we're not abandoned, we're not left to do our, in our own strength, we're not left using our own gifts, we're not orphaned, but rather his spirit is at work in you, resting on you, comforting, strengthening, equipping, helping you keep going, making you more resilient than perhaps you think you are. 
Five bits of treasure in the trial. At least helping us move towards the ability to praise him in the midst of it. Know that it's coming. Know that he's using it to refine us. Know that you are identifying with Jesus in it. Know that it's suffering now, glory later, and know it's on you now. Which doesn't take away the pain or the hardship, does it? You put yourself in that situation next week and you think, will I duck the opportunity? Will I keep quiet? Will I just blend in? Maybe. But maybe if we have those five treasures to cling on to, maybe we might be more likely to make a stand to be a bit different. Not quite so ready to avoid it this time. Maybe even then to praise him in the midst of it. So there's the first point, praise in the midst of suffering. The second one is commitment in the midst of suffering. Let me read again, verse 17 onwards. For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer, according to God's will, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. What's he saying? He's saying that through the hardships, God is at work refining his household, refining his people. And I think the idea, again, comes from passage or passages before Jesus. And Malachi 3 is a really helpful one here. And God is going to come, Malachi said, which is the last book in our Old Testament at least, just before Matthew. Malachi says, God is going to come to his people and purify his people. In Malachi 3, verse 3, God will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, they were the priests, and refine them like gold and silver. And of course, the the household before Jesus, the temple, the sanctuary, was a physical building of bricks and mortar. A place, a physical geographical place where you would go and you would meet with God. Since Jesus, that's all changed. We don't have a temple anymore, at least not in terms of bricks and mortar. In one sense, you're not sat in a church, but rather the church is a people of God. So give me, let me give you some verses. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves, church in Corinth, are God's temple and God's spirit lives among you? Or Ephesians 2, 19, Consequently, you, Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. 1 Timothy 3.15, if I'm delayed, says Paul, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the temple now is not a building made of bricks and mortar, it's a people made of living stones. And just as purification was going to come and happen in the temple in Malachi, So says Peter, through the suffering that we experience, purification is happening now among us. But he says it won't stop with us. It won't stop with us. He explains, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? There's a kind of purifying judgment that we go through, you and I go through, that we together go through, that matures us, that grows us, that shapes us. But if even his people whom he loves are facing that, Peter says, join the dots. What's that going to mean for those outside the people of God, for those who don't obey him? 
Again, we saw it last week in 4 verse 5. They will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If his people whom he loves experience this, what does that mean for those who are outside of his people? Friends, if you're here this morning or listening later um, online or sometime in the future, who knows, then, and you wouldn't call yourself a believer or you're not quite sure where you stand with all of this, maybe you just feel wobbly. Can, you, can I say, know that the Bible is clear. We live in a moral universe. That this is not all there is. One day Jesus will return and final justice will be seen and, and people won't get away with it and God will come and he will come and judge. And so if you are not a follower of Jesus, can I urge you to receive him? Receive the gift of salvation that we get to enjoy in him. Receive the gift of him. Because one day he will be your judge. Some of you might be aware of the work of Labrie. Francis and Edith Schaefer's ministry. Um, it started off in Switzerland. There was a sort of a home, a big home, to show hospitality and warmth and to engage with questions people might have of the Christian faith. So loads of people would be staying, people who, who weren't believers. And they would just come and have their questions carefully, lovingly, kindly responded to. And the story is told of a man visiting their home in Switzerland. These places are all around the world now. This was the first one. And after dinner one night... There was a conversation ranging over all kinds of profound, deep theological subjects and topics. And some, suddenly someone asks Dr. Schaefer and says, so what will happen to those who die outside of Christ? And in a moment, the atmosphere just changed. And there is everyone around the dinner table waiting for some great theological answer. Some weighty intellectual response. And there was just silence. And he just bowed his head and he wept. Some have said that um, Schaefer's legacy is a legacy of tears. A brokenness that comes from reading the scriptures and then seeing the, the reality of a world outside of Christ. Knows that one day judgment will come. And so there are tears. There's a comfort for the people of God. He's at work, he's refining. There's a challenge for those who are not the people of God. How do we end the passage, though? How do we end this section in verse 19? It's continuing to do good. Commit ourselves to our faithful creator. That is, he is sovereign and he is just and we can trust him. But in the mess and the mayhem and the pain of the hardship, we, we commit ourselves to him and we continue to do good, church. Morgan Road, hold your nerve. Don't, don't turn the volume down. Don't back off. Don't blend in. Continue to do good. Why? Well, it's all joined up, isn't it? It's all linked together. I guess we're brought back to the section from about three or four weeks ago. At the start of this, the beginning of the start of this section, 2, 11 and 12, do you remember the good word there, good? 
Remember it, live such good lives, 2, 2 verse 12, live such good lives among those who don't follow Jesus that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Continue to do good. Keep trusting, keep going. Continue to be different, continue to stand out. And when they ask you why, why do you have this hope? Why, why are you just a bit weirdly different? Why do you not dance to the same tune as everybody else? Why do you seem to be living your life for somebody else? Why do you have hope? Well, then we point to him. We point to the one to whom one day they will have to give an account. So they approach him not as an enemy, but rather as a friend, one whom they love. Let's pray. Father, we confess, we confess how easy it can be for us to just blend in with the world around, to love comforts, to love approval, and so not be willing to suffer, to not be willing to follow after Christ in the hard things, to just have him as saviour and not as Lord. And so we, we long that some of these these little treasures in the trials would, would find themselves a place in our hearts that we might be prepared, might be prepared to stand out and to be different. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your extraordinary suffering for us that would take you to the cross, dying for a people who didn't know they needed it, dying for your enemies at the time. And so we long that you might be at work in us, as individuals, as a church, that we would be prepared to follow after you. In your name we pray.